Welcome, Life Group Leaders, to another episode of the Life Group Leader Podcast. You know it every week. We want to remind you that we exist as a church to make disciples of Jesus Christ by reaching people for Christ, teaching people to be like Christ, and training people to serve Christ. And everything we do here at Compass, including this podcast, is to fulfill the mission of reaching, teaching, and training. Leaders, we have wrapped up our series on the Sermon on the Mount with our final sermon in the Countercultural Kingdom series, Wise and Foolish Builders, was the title of our final sermon, as uh, that title reflects the uh, nature of the text that Jesus uh, ends his series with in Matthew 7, starting in verse 24, and I'll read it for you as we get started. In verse 24, it says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The preaching point of this week's sermon was the outcome of your life, both temporally and eternally, is directly determined by whether or not you obey Jesus' words. And the three points from that preaching point was, number one, you have to ask yourself this question, Is your foundation Christ's words? The second question to ask ourselves is, are you building for the storms ahead? And number three, will you stand secure on the day of judgment? This kind of sermon, uh, we want to, when we lead it, even when I want to preach it, uh, tone matters. And what we want to do is, as preachers, and what we all want to do as we are exegeting Scripture is we want to ask, what is the tone of these verses? And uh, we want to, as uh, wise preachers, teachers, leaders, is we want our own tones to take on the tone of the text. And so we need to do the hard work of looking at what Jesus is saying and not only asking, what is he saying, but How is he saying it? And a lot of this we can do by looking at the language of the texts, by also looking at the the overall message of the Sermon on the Mount and who he's speaking to. As you can think, even as uh, Jesus is speaking to, uh, if you look in the Gospels, when Jesus is speaking to uh, the Pharisees, that'll take on a different tone than when he is talking to uh, the lame beggar. And, and we recognize, depending on the crowds and the audience, all these things w- will change and determine the tone. And, of course, sometimes it is hard to know the tone. But when you look at this text and you hear Jesus saying these kind of words, whoever hears these words and does them is like a wise man. And then whoever hears these words and does not do them is like a foolish man. And so when we use the terms wise and foolish we begin thinking of the tones that Jesus would be using. Uh, when he uses the word foolish, that tells us something. Like, oh, when we use the word, oh, that was foolish. Your tone changes. 
because you want people to distinguish the the consequences as you see it from the decisions they're making and that term foolish kind of helps helps us understand the tone that Jesus is going for uh, and again you see it uh, as well uh, in the verse 27 at the end of it it says and that house fell and great was the fall of it the tone there was was, was this this serious, uh, bold, uh, really uh, what you would, would call the, the pinnacle or the, or the, the summit of, of the attitude of this text was it's not that it just fell, but great was the fall of it. So you look at those, you look at those terms and you look at how Jesus is speaking to close a sermon and you begin at least unraveling a little bit, at least in what my mind when I'm studying the text, asking myself, how is Jesus saying this? How is he coming off? And again, when we're thinking about tone, I go to verse 28 and 29 to help me again with this idea of the tone of this message. Like, how should I get up behind the pulpit and preach this message? Verse 28 helps me too. The crowds were astonished. I mean, they're, they're astonished because of what Jesus was saying and how he was saying it. And so that idea that I know that they're sitting back there on, on the mount by the Sea of Galilee, listening to this rabbi, they're saying, this guy is not like the other guys. He's teaching as one who has authority. And so we can deduce that the tone that Jesus has here is one that demands that our attitude reflects that, which means that I want to have a serious tone. I want to have a bold tone. I want it to be wrapped in the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I want it to be sharp. I want the edges to be sharp. I want people who bump in to the words of Jesus. Uh, I, I, I want it. I want it to cut. I want it to wound, because what I want to heal that is I don't want I don't want us uh, thinking that we can heal that kind of wound on our own. And I think too many times we dull the edges of the message. And it causes people to try to put their own ointment on there because it wasn't as sharp as what Jesus was saying. Because we try to soften Jesus' words, people can walk off and the wound's not too deep. But what I want to do when Jesus is speaking, I want it to be a sharp knife. And I want it to be a wound that only the grace of Christ can heal. And so I, I thought that maybe as I start that this podcast off for you life group leaders and apprentices as you're listening to this, to kind of start with this idea of tone and uh, how we ought to think about tone in the text of Scripture and why uh, one week we would, my, I would preach a certain way with a certain tone and other weeks it may be a different tone depending on uh, the text and what we believe the tone of that text is to the original hearers and how the preacher can use his own tone to be able to help reflect the meaning and the force of that text, which I see when we look at this text, it's uh, it's very forceful and the tone is very serious and they have these stark contrast of the wise man and the foolish man. So I hope that helps you a little bit, even as you're leading your life group to think about tone matters. Um, and hopefully that can help you at least give an introduction to this idea of tone as we're looking at the text and looking at a sermon being preach. Well, we have a lot of application questions to go through this week with uh, a few longer texts to read. Uh, some of the texts have been longer over the last couple of weeks because I'm wanting people to see the context of uh, the text that we're looking at. I think like the second question there, read John 14, 15 through 24. I'm wanting people to see, uh, hey, this is the whole uh, context. I don't want to 
I don't want people to think that we're just cherry picking. Of course, there are some shorter verses in there, but but leaders, what I'm wanting to do is help people think. There's there are some people, uh, and many people, and all of us to a certain extent, but many people to a greater extent, uh, when they're hearing expository preaching, they are having an absolute paradigm shift of the Jesus they thought they knew and the Jesus that we see in Scripture. And so as we're doing these questions, and as I'm picking scriptures, I'm wanting them to see the, the whole Jesus, the one that's full of grace and compassion and love, but the one who is also full of boldness and truth, uh, and the one who will hold the keys of judgment uh, at, at the end times. And so I want people to see the whole picture, and so some of these will be longer just because I want people to see the whole context of scripture laid out, because I do want people's paradigms of who they think Jesus is to match Scripture. And so we, we want to try to do that in our application questions. So maybe that's another lens you can put over your application questions and ask, you know, how ought this change the way that you think about Jesus? And question number one, as you read John 14, 15 through 24, and 1 John 2, 3 through 6, the question follows is, in what ways does the emphasis these verses place on obeying Christ's words affect how you think and speak about Christian obedience? What we have to do and we know that this will do it, and I know our life groups, they're growing, and many of them may already be at this precipice or pass through that precipice, but this idea that, you know, they've got pe- people that think that obeying Christ, there's no bearing on obedience in the Christian life when it comes to my faith because the, the Christ doesn't demand that. He demands that I believe, and what we have to ask is, where did you hear that? Uh, we do believe in the free gift of the of, of the grace of Christ for those who would believe and, and place their faith in Christ Jesus, absolutely. But what we also know for sure that that free grace transforms a person on the inside and changes them from the inside out. And so there is uh, this focus on obeying Christ in Scripture that we cannot neglect. And so as we do that and you ask this kind of question, how ought this question change the way that someone who believed that obeying Christ is not absolutely necessary in the Christian life, how might this question change the way that they think about Jesus if they answer this question correctly? So you see kind of the way that I'm thinking about going through these questions and writing them. I want to either change the way people see Jesus to make it reflect more of who Christ is as we see in Scripture, Um, and that's really what I'm hoping that many of these verses do, or I'm hoping that it puts all of us as a church on the same page about what we ought to think about Christ if we're going to look at him the way that Scripture uh, tells us to. Uh, Other questions, uh, maybe the same thing. Questions three and four play off of each other, so I think those may be uh, pretty simple for you guys, but I really want to encourage you guys on question number four uh, to have people in your group give examples of storms that they've gone through in their life that have helped them either affirm uh, the foundation that they have under them is indeed Christ or the storms that had them call into question whether Christ was their foundation. I think that'll be a very uh, powerful time in your life group to sit and spend some time, some serious time, uh, talking about, hey, here's some storms I've gone through in life and here's uh, the storm that I went through that I realized that Christ wasn't my foundation and my life was crumbling underneath me. Or on, on the flip side of many stories that I know I'm going to hear even in my own life group, but maybe in yours people say, yeah, life crumbled around me, but the ground did not crumble beneath me because my foundation was on Christ. Um, I think that would be uh, 
a helpful question for you guys to spend quite a bit of time on question four. And 4A talks about what our foundations, our culture often trusts in that prove inadequate in the face of storms and trials. Uh, that will, in one way or another, get you to begin talking about this idea of worldview, uh, which is something I think I want to train our life group leaders and apprentices on uh, in the near future, uh, is this the concept of worldview or how you uh, view the world, uh, or really even a better definition than that would be is the set of fundamental beliefs and commitments that you have that help you interpret reality. Um, and I'm telling you, this is, the, this is the gist of why we get into the biggest disagreements in our world today is simply because we have different fundamental beliefs and commitments that we've used to help us interpret reality. I think of even this idea of abortion and, and, and being uh, pro-life and believing in the sanctity of life. It has everything to do with what you believe about humanity, that you believe that humans were created in God's image for a purpose. And so, therefore, we would believe that taking any image of God that has been fashioned after his image and taking that and, and ending that life without choice in the womb uh, would be a, tr- a drastic separation from your fundamental beliefs and commitments. Now, think about it on this other side of the spectrum. If you are an, an atheist, a naturalist, maybe an, an existentialist, uh, you would be one who says, well, we are just a process of biological uh, chance over time. And so that uh, fetus, that baby in there, they wouldn't call it that, but that organism there in that mother's womb uh, is no more than just chance. And it definitely isn't uh, any kind of entity made in any image of any deity. Uh, It is just a part of matter, just like everything else is. And at the end of the day, uh, survival of the fittest, if you want to use Darwinian uh, terminology, but really at the end of the day, there is not any purpose for that life other than what meaning I choose to or choose not to give it. And therefore, if I choose not to allow that life inside of me uh, to make it, that is ultimately up to me because I'm the one who sets morality and purpose for me and, and that which impacts my life. And so anyway, I, I like to give you at least that crash course and worldview to think, well, it's not just because they hate me that they're not pro-life like me. It's because they see reality from a completely different perspective, fundamental beliefs and commitments that they have that you don't and that you have that they don't. And we're not making excuses for sin, but what we're saying is it'd be best for you to learn about those kind of concepts so you can better defend the gospel, better defend the scripture, and uh, better have conversations with people. Which brings me to a, a book called The Universe Next Door by James Sire. It's an introduction to worldview. He's got a couple other books out there that you could use as well, but I think that one's helpful. Uh, if you want to talk about storms just in and of themselves, uh, Pastor Mike has a book called Lifelines for Tough Times. It teaches people how to walk through the storms of life. Actually, the cover of it, I believe, is a storm. So a really, um, really accurate <laughs> description of the text that we just find ourselves in this last week. And as we talk about, and I'm just giving you guys a couple of resources you guys can have in hand to help you guys work through this text and to have with you as you move forward in your life, uh, as you're discipling your life groups. Uh, the third book that I think would be helpful for you guys is a book showing you that there's a lot of people who believe in this guy named Jesus and believe in a God, and some that don't, but some that do, who are not going to stand before God on that 
eschatological day of judgment that we that is a storm and it can be pictured as such and that judgment is coming and they're not going to stand there their foundation is going to crumble underneath them uh, because at the end of the day they were as walter martin would say part of the kingdom of the cults and so that is actually the book i would like to recommend to you king the kingdom of the cults by walter martin it is an exhaustive and i, I think even the way that it calls it is the definitive work on the subject and so if you want a really really good book on uh belief systems of uh, different uh, worldviews and different religions. That's a really, 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 really helpful uh, resource for you guys. Uh, and you'll, you'll then also begin seeing why, why I spend a lot of time thinking about the different ways people view Jesus, because Jesus is not the same across cults and religions, and it doesn't. And so I'm, I have to make the argument that just because uh, a Scientologist or a Jehovah Witness, uh, Christian Science with Ellen G. White and the Mormon, and they call on the name of Jesus. It's just not the Jesus that we call on for salvation. And so anyway, those are some helpful resources, I think, for you guys as you are leading uh, as you're leading this week in your life groups. Uh, a lot of announcements to go through. Just remind you guys of our men's fellowship on November the 11th coming up this Saturday from 9 to 11. We have our uh, last Exploring Compass of the Year coming up on November 12th and 19th. We have 60 people registered for that, and registrations are closing this week. So if you have anybody you know who needs to finish up or go through Exploring Compass, that they would do so uh, at our final Exploring Compass of the Year. As you heard Pastor Evan announce, our slate of uh, ministry events that we entitle Christmas at Compass. We have our Women's Christmas Coffee coming up on December the 2nd. Everyone must register, but the registration is free. We've already have over 60 women registered for that, and we are looking for quite a few more gals to sign up for that. And it's a wonderful opportunity. It's a once-a-year kind of event. I mean, we call it a Women's Christmas Coffee, but it's really like a women's bonanza. It's just crazy. It's a, an absolute blast. You, still, you hear the teaching of God's Word. The women uh, dress nice. They dress up their tables, and it looks like an absolute blast every year they do it. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're a gal, you're listening to this, don't hesitate to sign up for this. You're not going to want to miss a wonderful event to close out our women's ministry for the year. The very next day, we have Dr. Chris McKinney, who is a biblical archaeologist, coming out to show us the archaeological evidence of the Bethlehem account that we see in Scripture. And so I want to invite you, and you should invite many people to join you, as we have a really unique sermon from a biblical archaeologist who's going to teach us about the uh, physical evidence, the empirical evidence that we have that Scripture is authentic. And of course, maybe you're listening to this and you are like, I don't need any more evidence, but it's always good to have... uh, an encouraging message like this that shows you that that in which we believe is genuinely and uh, historically true. We have a Christmas celebration also uh, in December, December, as well as our kids' Christmas choir and our serve team celebration and the Christmas Eve service that is on Sunday. We have services at 9 and 11 there. I really want to encourage you guys to begin inviting people. This is, we are getting into these holiday seasons, which we call our evangelism push and it's not that we don't want to do evangelism. We don't, we don't want to invite people to church every single week. But this is a special time that we as a whole family invest time and money in to uh, create an atmosphere to say, bring some people. And we're going to help them connect with Jesus Christ. And so I want you to take this seriously, Life Group Leaders, to make sure you're announcing it in that context. That we're not just having events. We're here 
trying to connect people with Jesus Christ. And so invite them to these things, uh, all except for the serve team celebration, which is only for all of those who are on a serve team who have served with us this year. And that is on Monday night, December the 18th. And we are meeting at the Civic Center. We're renting that bad boy out and we're throwing a throwing a party there to celebrate how God has used our serve team this year to bring him glory, to bring people to Jesus, and to make disciples. And so we'd love for you to go ahead and reserve your spot for that. You can do that online at compasshillcountry.org. Make sure you RSVP for that, and we'll look forward to seeing you guys there. All right, life group leaders and apprentices, we look forward to seeing what God does through our life groups this week, and I look forward to seeing you next weekend.